All right, welcome. This is episode number 67 of the Bearded Marketers Podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. We're bringing the latest and greatest in internet marketing every Monday morning at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher Radio. Hit us up when you get a chance, 904-270-9603. Text us your thoughts or leave a voicemail. And leave a review on said site. Where <laughs> did you find us? Go ahead, leave a review. I dare you. That was the weekly badgering from Corey to leave a review on our iTunes. Oh, it's coming later too. <laughs> Don't you worry. Feel free to hit us up with any questions, comments, complaints, love stories that you have. We do love to get feedback from listeners for topics they'd like us to cover in future upcoming episodes. We always listen to those and get back to you and cover them on the next episode. Speaking of topics on episodes, we've got an amazing lineup today for you. We're recording this on the eve of the birth of America. Of the Republic. <laughs> the Republic of America. Right on the heels of losing in the World Cup. We're, yeah, exactly. That's the problem. I didn't want to talk about that. <laughs> I had um, to bring you down a little bit. We're, we're trying to get out of the office, but we'll, we're going to stick around for this. Mm-hmm. We're going to start it off with part two of Michael Agard's interview from last episode, which if you're not familiar with Michael Agard slash contentverb.com, Check out his website. Check out episode number 66 where we introduce him and he talks about a few things about conversion rate optimization. Again, this is part two. We're going to talk a little bit about best practices in conversion rate optimization and form conversion. This will be the flip side of the coin from what Corey was talking about with form conversion last week. Tell us what else we got on the episode. Well, we got press releases. There's been some rumblings in that industry, which we're going to cover, which is going to actually probably take the place of our Google corner. It has a lot to do with Google. You're going to lead the way. You're going to put your professor hat on and tell us about psychology and online marketing. And then wrapping up the episode, there's also been some buzz around Bitcoin and us as marketers. How do we need to potentially look at that from not only the conversion standpoint, but what is it worth for our marketing efforts to potentially take on a currency like that, but also some of the ramifications that might be present? So let's go ahead and kick it off with our favorite Nordic Viking, Mr. Agard, coming back for part two. He didn't have enough of us in just one episode. He had to come back. <laughs> Before we get in, we cannot commit the sin of going 67 episodes without talking about what we're drinking to get into the mood to bring you the latest and greatest in internet marketing. So, I'm doing a whiskey and Coke. Okay. Well, bourbon. It's uh, Buffalo Trace, so it's all we so have here tasty. in the office. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm doing one of your recommendations, Talisker 10. Little bits on the peaty side, very smoky. But not Lafroy, like I'm burning tires in my mouth. <laughs> like you're going to smell like it for the next two days. <laughs> right. So let's go ahead. All right. Kick it off with the Viking. Back to Michael Agard from contentverve.com fame. You know, best practices is something I think we like to rag on a lot here on the podcast. Never get tired of yeah, it. Yeah, we like to bring up benchmark guides, numbers, things like that, tips, and then wreck them. So I wanted to ask Michael what he thought of best practices in conversion rate optimization best practices kind of suck because, you know, we're not trying to do what everybody else is trying to do. We're trying to do what's best in the particular conversion scenario that we're working on. And instead of just saying, oh, so these guys, they tested, you know, a green button and it performed better than their red button. So we should only use green buttons forever. You should more dig down into the, the mechanics, the psychology of it and say, was it really the color or was it, or that particular color red, or was it maybe because we're really dealing with visual hierarchy and in this particular conversion scenario, that green color helped the button stand out. 
And maybe if our entire website is green, then probably a green button is not going to help us, uh, <laughs> you know, make it stand out. So that, that's really what we're trying to do. And that's why testing is data-driven testing and optimization is such a, a huge part of optimization because we're not trying to, to just guess what's best. We're trying to actually be scientific and find out what is best in this particular conversion scenario. So we can, can get inspiration from others, from their work, but we need to adjust it. We need to find out if it actually works for us also, because just because it worked on Amazon <laughs> doesn't mean it's gonna work on our side. It doesn't even mean that Amazon is doing everything correctly, for example. I mean, there's a lot of other things influencing why they have their huge success. Another thing I wanted to talk to him about was form conversion, because I think that oftentimes that's what we focus on when we do conversion rate optimization. You know, it's sort of the biggest pain point for most people. It tends to be the easiest thing to focus on, too, with conversion rate optimization. It can be kind of difficult and a bit of an art to try to optimize messaging and the marketing angles and things like that. But forms are pretty straightforward for the most part and apply across a few different industries. So I asked him what he had to say about some of the latest, greatest in form optimization. So another area that I found absolutely <laughs> fascinating, web form optimization. And when I say web forms, I don't just mean like a sign-up form for your newsletter. I'm talking about forms and also your, your checkout process, the forms you use there, or lead gen forms. So from a newsletter sign-up form to actually you know checkout process. But it's pretty incredible what you can do there. And I think for most people, form optimization is about removing form fields. <laughs> and that's it. But there's a hell of a lot more you can do. Forms are what I would call a mission critical element you know it's an element that you have to interact with in order to get to whatever is behind the form so they're absolutely critical and when you're dealing with mission critical elements small changes usually have a huge impact for good or bad but just be aware of when Small changes don't always have an impact, but when you're dealing with mission critical elements, they usually do. So I've been testing a lot of different aspects of forms. So one thing is, of course, the way you present the form. For example, newsletter sign up. Do you want to say sign up now? Well, I mean, from a usability standpoint, that's makes sense, but it's very business centric. It's like thinking, what do we want people to do? We want them to sign up. So what should we write? We'll write sign up. Well, if you kind of turn around and a little bit more customer centric, you say, is that really the best way to get me? Is that the way you're going to get me to say yes? Or could you maybe give me a reason to sign up? So it might be get free updates or it might be get free conversion advice. Turn around to something that's positive. Instead of talking about what I have to do for you or what I have to partner with, tell me what you're going to give me. And it's free, but I'm still paying for it, man. I'm giving you my contact info. I'm giving you my email. What am I getting in return? Tell me that. A small thing like that, just the headline on, for example, a sign-up form or a legion form is, you know, has huge impact. And also, for example, just the privacy policy. I've been running a lot of privacy policy tests. And what I found out is that every single variation I've tested on, for example, a sign-up form where I've used the word spam in the privacy policy have underperformed. They've performed worse than not having privacy policy on there. The logic behind that, of course, I can only hypothesize about, you know, what goes on in the minds of the prospects. But what my testing indicates is that once you put the word spam there, it's kind of like a red flag. You're presenting an idea, the idea of spam to the potential customers. The best privacy policy I've come up with and tested is we guarantee 100% privacy. 
and then you can add, your information will not be shared. And that's really what people normally are worried about, in my experience, is actually information getting shared. There's a little uh, nifty tip for you. And also, I mean, with longer forms or with checkout processes or uh, legion forms that get a little bit longer, you know, just it's almost like marketers think that people get up in the morning all excited about the idea of filling out forms. So they're like, well, we already got them all the way through these 11 steps. So the last five steps, we're going to pull them through in this horrible form that doesn't matter because they've already made up their minds. You know, <laughs> I'd reverse it and say that's the absolutely most critical part of the whole website. For many e-commerce platforms, you know, they spend so much time optimizing the rest of the website and getting people up to the checkout. And then they just forget about the checkout experience. And that late in the conversion funnel, every little lift you get is money straight to the bank. So I'd say with e-commerce, for example, start by making sure that the whole checkout process is seamless. And there's a lot of different things that have impact in form optimization. Just the alignment of your field labels, for example, there's a big difference between having in-field labels, having them top aligned, having them left aligned, having them left aligned to the right. There's so many different little things that can help make it easier just to get through the process of filling out the form. And of course, don't ask for more than you have to. So filling it or removing form fields is you know, often a quick way of getting more people to fill them out. But I'm all over the place right now, just firing different ideas. But if we get back to form labels, think about what you're asking. I've performed a couple of tests right now with unusual forms. You're asking for information that people are not used to. And actually asking questions, I've seen that help. So instead of, if it's something that people are used to, just email and name or whatever, that's gonna make sense. They can decipher that right away. But if you're asking about stuff they're not used to, this was, can't really get into the particular case study because uh, I haven't gotten that one. It was a, a website where the Legion of Ration Forum was pretty advanced, a lot of forum fields, and they were asking for information that people weren't used to. So I'm just saying kind of like barking orders or whatever, we're actually asking them questions. So instead of just saying email, we say, what is your email address? And kind of follow that way. Of course, it's a bad example because I can't talk about the client, but just to put the idea out there. So if you're asking people for something like, yeah, I don't know, a meeting at some point in time, instead of saying time or whatever, or a date, you could say, when do you want to hold the meeting? At what point do you want to hold the meeting? And I've seen that work sometimes that people, instead of, of having to kind of decipher what do they mean by that, when you ask them questions, they'll simply answer the question in the form field. So that's a little trick right there. And also make it easy to get an overview of the whole thing. If the form is in three parts, make sure that you actually write it at the top so you know, okay, I can expect to go through three steps. And this is just basic stuff, but I see a lot of people forgetting that. I worked with a client on the three-step Legion form where they said, fill out the, these three easy steps. And in each step, there was like 50 form fields. And it's like, you telling me that it's easy doesn't make it easy. So let's you know, focus on actually making it easy instead of trying to <laughs> persuade people to think it's easy. And also another thing, so there's this rule of thumb that the more steps you have, the more people are gonna, gonna exit from your checkout. And well, while that seems logic, that's not really what it's about. It's not about removing steps. It's about making the experience as simple as possible. And I've recently worked on several different cases where a one-step form underperformed as compared to a three- or five-step form. And that's because if you have a lot of information, 
you're going to have a form that's going to be ridiculously long all of a sudden. And from user testing and session recordings and actually testing it afterwards, what often happens is that people, they just get overwhelmed when they can see 154 <laughs> fields or whatever on one page. And it's actually easier. It makes it more simple that you can see, ah, okay, so here are three different steps I have to go through. And on each one, there might be a couple. So there's this guy called Luke Rublowski who's written an incredible book on form optimization. And I like his approach because he's saying, so the whole question of when do you have one step, when do you have several steps, he says, every time you start a new story or new narrative, once you jump from one area of questions to another, then it makes sense to have a new step. And that's kind of a form optimization principle that I subscribe to. And then I say the basic premise is that, you know, nobody loves to fill out forms. So let's just make it as easy, as simple as possible for them to do it. And that comes down to the way you design your form. Always some good advice and tips from Mr. Agard. Hopefully we'll have him back on shortly with some of the other things he has cooking on in his lab. But again, thank you so much for your time. Again, if you want to check out Mr. Agard, contentverve.com is his, I'd say, labor of love. Definitely some great content on there. Also, if this is your first episode with us or you didn't catch last week's episode, I would recommend going back and listening to that as well. He has some really good, interesting findings that he discusses around pop-ups, which we all know how Rob and I feel about both of those. But he's been doing some testing around that, particularly around not just pop-ups, but this new budding industry, which is called Exit Intent. And how well does that work? No spoiler alert. Damn, I almost spoiled it. (laughs) So give that a listen to. We're going to move right along into press releases. So we're going to first talk about what is the state of affairs. And then I wanted to talk a little bit about what people typically don't discuss about press releases, which is going to wrap into some of the experiences that we've had with them. How about first, when you even say press releases, what are we really talking about? Because, you know, maybe for someone who's not familiar with press releases in the SEO industry. Press release may not be what you think. Probably the only thing you need to take away before we get into this is that press releases in the internet marketing world for a long time were BS, hack, link building, (laughs) SEO techniques. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of providers out there that were doing it pretty much to, to spam your press release out to a bunch of crappy websites that no one was reading. And it wasn't what many people may think a press release is, which is actually sending it to people in the press. Right. <laughs> right. So it wasn't that. Right. So to further clarify, in the past, how you could use and leverage press releases, let's say you had a site, you know, Mike's Island Drinks, and you wanted to build a link profile so you could rank higher in organic searches. What you could do is hire some of the PR firms out there, write up a press release with links to your site, and they would essentially disseminate that to thousands of sites out there. And in the past, when Google and Yahoo and these types of search engines were less sophisticated, they started counting these links as backlinks to your site, thus making your site have higher authority with these search engines, better ranking, things like that. So That's really kind of what Rob's talking about. It was used as a spam method to increasing kind of your site's authority and backlink profile. The PR industry has really had to evolve. There has been some efforts by the search engines to, number one, squash that backlinking trick that many sites were using. And really to kind of put things in perspective, their most recent efforts in this Panda 4.0 release, which was in late May, probably even people that haven't done press releases have heard of PR Newswire. I mean, it's a fairly large service and industry. I think they were the OG. But to put things in perspective on how little Google is starting to value some of these services, post Panda 4.0, their organic visibility has dropped 63%. 
Bam. Boom. In your face. (laughs) So there's been this conversation that has percolated from this data point. What is really the point of online press releases anymore? Don't get my cheaty backlinks anymore. Now it's also getting less visible. The search engines are just valuing this less and less. So there's been this conversation of why even do them anymore? Now, before we get into why you maybe should and consider those things, a lot of the press release sites have now had to work with the search engines to come up with very strict guidelines on what they're actually going to accept now into their ecosystem. PR Newswire has taken the lead on that. They've released this new copy quality guidelines that their editorial staff is going to go over every article for. You have to fill out this questionnaire and do a lot more effort really to do press releases, which I think on a whole is probably good for the industry to be taken seriously. Um, There have been some other victims in this. So namely Yahoo back in the day had bought this company called Associated Content, which was another, we could call them content aggregator and PR type service. And Yahoo, because many people hypothesize of how penalize that site now is post panda 4.0 they've decided to shutter the doors and just close down that entire network altogether so it has really shaken up the content market quite a bit but to be honest that was actually google's intention you know they wanted to clean up their results they wanted to get more legitimate companies that are doing real efforts to get into search and potentially move away from these more antiquated ways on signaling authority to these search engines. And I think what Google is trying to bridge the gaps of is looking at old established sites, authority sites, but also taking into account that trends change and things get hot and there's this velocity of results and cultural phenomenon that happens that they have to be able to adapt to as well. So there's this interesting balance they're having to take more into account. And I think that, that these type of efforts might be helping bridge that gap a little bit more. Now, to whether or not you should use press releases or not, much like benchmarks, we can't give you a definite yes or no. But at least in, in our experience, and I think you've particularly had a lot more experience in this than, than I have, but Press releases still serve a very good purpose on building your link portfolio, not necessarily in the traditional sense of now you get 10,000 backlinks to all these, the spectrum of very legitimate sites to Joe's cooking blog that might be serving up these stories. The experience that we have had is that when you send out these press releases, real journalists and reporters and editors pay attention to these wires And you have a greater likelihood of people picking up what you're actually doing a release about and doing a write-up, which then you can actually get a good backlink and some quality content generated for your site. So I think that some people's mindset needs to change on what they should come to expect for press releases, but also just because they've taken a temporary hit in search engine rankings, that doesn't mean that's still not a viable strategy for some companies to get a linking profile and also get some press, as the name suggests. I think the problem with press releases is just that there's been so many companies get into it as of late and the way that they market it is as this very turnkey just throw $500 at us and we'll throw your press release in front of all of these very important people that write for important newspapers and magazines and things like that but that's just not how it works 
I mean, think of it from the other end of the spectrum. I mean, if you were someone in the industry writing for a magazine or newspaper and you were connected into some of these press release feeds, I'm sure you're inundated with thousands of bullshit BS (laughs) articles every day. You're not going to read that. You're not going to pay attention to that stuff. The barriers to entry just need to be upped. It sounds like PR Newswire is moving in that direction because it'll clean out a lot of that crap. I think that press releases can still work. The the caveat is you actually have to have something important and newsworthy Mm -hmm. to be sharing, which most, unfortunately, websites out there trying to do press releases, you don't have anything that anyone cares about. Let us know what you think about press releases. How many of you out there actually still use them? What are your thoughts on them? Maybe your experiences? Let us know. We definitely like to keep the conversation going because it is an interesting part of the online space that because there's been so many more new people to this space, a lot of them don't have a ton of experience into it. So I think that some of our older, saltier people can maybe lend some experiences or instructions to maybe the crowd that are just new to things and really don't even know what we're talking about. Moving right along, Professora Roberto, let's talk about some psychology and how that has to do with marketing, which is all about marketing, to be honest. Yeah, you know, we work in internet marketing. You know, just like I was talking about with press releases, we like turnkey solutions. I don't want to have to think about what I'm actually doing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. An important thing to remember is that psychology is at the root of a lot of the things we do in marketing, even if we know it or not. I came across this article on eConsultancy.com on their blog. It talked about three specific sort of tactics that we use oftentimes in marketing that have their roots in psychology. I just wanted to run through a couple of them really quickly and then maybe spend a little bit more time on one of them in particular because I think it's kind of interesting But the first one, which I think we all use all of the time, it's social proof, right? Having the little count numbers of how many people have tweeted our article or testimonials from people who have loved our products. I mean, social proof is something that we use on virtually every marketing type of campaign that most internet marketers run these days. Look at some specific examples if you're not quite sure of exactly maybe how social proof can be used. You can head over to this e-consultancy blog post, which again, we will tweet out. So by the time you're listening to this, you can follow along. Another one I wanted to talk about was anchoring. And this is a kind of interesting one because you oftentimes see this used in the real world. Anchoring simply means, I'll just throw an example at you. So an easy one to keep in mind is, let's say I'm purchasing a software as a service from some website and they have three packages. One is $9 and they call it the value package. Mm -hmm. One is $20 and it's whatever the medium package. And one is (laughs) $1,000 and it's, you know, some pro package, right? Sure. The point of having schemes like that is oftentimes to get most people in a scenario like that will choose the medium one, right? And it's not a loser and get the lowest. Come on. Exactly. There's a lot of psychology that goes into setting the expectations of users by having maybe a lower cost product slash service package, whatever it is that maybe doesn't really fit the qualifications for a lot of people, but sets the price expectations in people's minds Mm -hmm. so that now this medium one looks like, it's just slightly more expensive than this low-cost one. But it's drastically underpriced from this insanely priced one, right? Mm -hmm. So you're setting expectations in people's minds by anchoring their thought processes around, and I'm talking specifically about pricing here, but this can be used for a lot of different things. You're anchoring them around other things that they can then relatively look at how is this actually priced in the market. So you can sort of set those expectations in people's minds. So that's another one. Number three, though, I want to talk about this one a little bit more. And this one is loss aversion. 
I'm going to read you straight off Wikipedia. Okay, so in economics and decision theory, loss aversion refers to people's tendency to strongly prefer avoiding losses to acquiring gains. So in marketing, the use of trial periods and rebates try to take advantage of this tendency. Put more simply, I guess you could put it like this, is so that loss aversion says basically that someone who loses $100 will lose more satisfaction than will a person who gains $100. Gotcha. Insatisfaction. Okay. So they're not equal. Exactly. Hmm. There's a, a Losing sting. hurts more than mm -hmm. winning wins. Alec Baldwin. That's, <laughs> exactly. That's a quote. <laughs> I'm going to tweet that one out. Chip Rob says that's one of them. All sorts of interesting ways that you could sort of message things. So an, an example would maybe be something along the lines of, do you word something as a $5, let's just say, discount or as avoiding a $5 surcharge, right? Right. So you just say shipping is free or buy this and avoid our $10 shipping. Those different wordings actually have a massive difference in people's minds mm -hmm. according to this loss aversion theory. Other examples, I mean, so that was one specifically related to, you know, shipping and whatever. So another example of this, and I'm sure everyone has seen this in the Expedia's slash Delta booking an airline flight of the world. I actually see this all the time on Delta. It kind of pisses me off because I feel like they're lying to me. But an example of this is, you know, you're going to book a flight or a hotel room or whatever it is, and they have this huge red little icon arrow message box next to it that says, hurry, only two left at this price or whatever it is, or book in the next 15 minutes to secure this price, implying that you're going to miss out on this. There will definitely be losses involved if you don't take action. Mm -hmm. Again, though, you know, I don't know how many other people feel that same way about I almost feel like you're not being truthful with me because mm -hmm. it doesn't feel right that that's true. Interestingly enough, though, it turned out to be true. <laughs> I tested this recently with Delta. Right, right. Booking a flight at the same time with a friend, I booked it like 30 seconds before they did and they got screwed on the price because there really was only one left at that price. Uh, so I guess I can't be too mad because they warned <laughs> me. You know, that's another example of using that sort of loss aversion in people's minds to help push them over the edge and get those conversions. Let's move on. We're running out of time here. What else do we need to talk about? Maybe a little bit more fireside chattish Bitcoin. So there's been this buzz, especially if, I mean, if you're in online marketing, of course, you're on the internet. So there's you, always a buzz. Yeah, you can't avoid the mention of Bitcoin these days from week to week. We won't necessarily go into what it is. I don't think we have the time and, and or the really technical capability to understand. <laughs> well, I think even if I explained them. it, I don't right. think I'd understand it. Right. I mean, I own it, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what well, it is I have. But really what we wanted to concentrate on is adopting that as a currency that you might take as payment what would your business entail or what does it need to think about in those instances? Is it even something you should be concentrating on? Yeah, I mean, there's been a few larger stores, I guess, recently. Mm -hmm. One in particular, Newegg.com. I think uh, Overstock led the way Overstock, with that. They yeah. were like immediate they were on a while bandwagon. Ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, so some big stores have taken the charge and sort of come out and plainly said, we accept Bitcoin now. It's always been an interesting thing to me because anyone who's sort of familiar with some of the backing of Bitcoin or how it kind of works knows that it's extremely volatile and it's kind of a pain in the ass to get it converted into real dollars sure. that you can then use in a business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's just been an interesting thing to me. I think, I don't know if you have any insights on where you think maybe Bitcoin is going and do people who run small businesses online or large ones, I don't know, maybe mm -hmm. we've got some Amazon e-commerce people <laughs> listening, which coincidentally enough, I read an article recently from Amazon's head of payments who said, no, we're not, we're not doing <laughs> Absolutely it. not. We are not doing Bitcoin. And I imagine that's because 
their margins are razor thin. They can't, mm-hmm. they cannot account for that sort of number one, the charges to get it back into real dollars and, and the little bit of volatility that's involved. Right. There. Speaking to that, I mean, I know how Newegg does it to your point about loss aversion. When you pay with Bitcoin on that site, you only have a 10 minute window from when you essentially tell them you want to buy and they give you the Bitcoin amount to actually fulfill that order because of the volatility of the currency. Now, to your point, really, on should small shops accept it versus large, I think what people need to weigh is, one, looking into services like BitPay and understand what are the complicating factors of accepting Bitcoin and the fact of what are the rates that are going to be involved? How is that going to affect my margins? Can I even afford this? But also the liquidity of the funds. So once the process goes through, if I'm a business that operates needing good liquidity in my capital that comes into the business every month, Bitcoin might present some issues there. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Mm -hmm. it it goes through a certain hold process or it depends on who your merchant processor is to unload that currency. But stepping it back from a marketer standpoint, I think that Bitcoin does offer a good marketing potential because they do have such a rabid fan base. There's quite a few other larger ones out there as well, but one cannot deny the fact that when companies start offering Bitcoin, there seems to be a contingent out of that Bitcoin community that goes out of their way to support those businesses, especially if you can get into some of the news outlets like Reddit and 4chan and some of these communities that really have large groupings of people that support this cryptocurrency. I think as a business, there is potentially something to gain to accepting that and having that community recognize it because it's it's very grassroots in that they're trying to, one, you know, grow their own efforts in Bitcoin, but they want to really support the businesses that are are helping them evangelize this as as a viable currency. Mm -hmm. So I think if I'm looking at things as straight a marketer standpoint, there is a very intriguing case to be made for Bitcoin. I think from a operation standpoint, or as a business owner, I think there's some more caveats that come into the conversation that I don't know if we could necessarily ignore or disregard. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to basically say is that I think for a lot of larger established online e-commerce stores, I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Aside from like a new egg whose target demo are people who use Bitcoin, right? So sure. I think it kind of makes sense there. But unless you're running a small e-commerce store that's looking to take advantage of the marketing opportunities that could potentially come with accepting Bitcoin. And if you were to do it, I think you'd have to leverage it to the max. Sure. I mean, you'd have to advertise the hell well, out of the I fact. mean, Newegg, it's all over. I mean, I don't know if they're running an AV test right now, yeah. but it's all over their homepage. It's huge and, front and, and center. And you'd, you'd have to do a press release. <laughs> Just <kidding. laughs> Consult can, Rob yeah, on that. Yeah, exactly. I think there are some potential opportunities there depending on whether or not you are trying to actively attract that specific demographic right. who's, who's out there using Bitcoin. That's an odd side note. To me, at least, it seems like a big pull for that currency is anonymity. Mm-hmm. But you're buying goods that are getting delivered to a physical address. <laughs> so to me, there's point, like this yeah. cognitive dissonance. We have this anonymity to purchase things, but I'm buying physical goods that I'm going to have to procure somewhere or pick up. Which put your tinfoil hats on right now. <laughs> this is a huge Mine push. Mine are always on. This is a huge push by the NSA to link oh. Bitcoin accounts to people's With addresses a... and names. <laughs> gotcha. Got to the root of it. <laughs> The you NSA, heard it here first. Newegg and Overstock are owned by the NSA secretly, and there that's what this push is all about. And that's what we'll leave you with <laughs> dun, on dun, episode dun. number 67. Thank you so much for tuning in with us this week. We had a great time bringing you the news. First of all, if you like the show, which you should have, 
when it comes to push number two. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> yet. We're glad that you enjoyed it. Share with a friend, a colleague, as Rob would say, a lover perhaps. Also, and here it comes, if you did enjoy it, give us some ratings on whatever application or program you found us on. Greatly appreciate it. It really helps us out. If you'd like to give us a topic, perhaps you listen every week and go, those beard guys, they're so smart, but they did forget about this. Or maybe you're struggling with something. The boss is yelling at you or you just don't know where to turn to solve a problem. You can either reach out to us on the website or you can give us a call 904-270-9603 or reach out to us on Twitter. We're quite active there as well. But give us a shout out. We love hearing from the listeners and we often get to any suggestions the very next episode because again, we love hearing from the audience. You are why we do this. Mm -hmm. That and the drinking. But until next week, we will talk to you later. Have a good one. Celebrate America. And we will talk to you next time. Gia. Gia.